Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 9. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. You may be seated. Bless you, mate. Several weeks ago, I preached a sermon here entitled Habitat for Divinity. And that sermon focused on the fact that we were created to be the dwelling place of God's Holy Spirit. And that as believers, he dwells within us. And I still find that to be a tremendous concept to try to grasp. As we looked at the Holy Spirit, that message was somewhat of, a, of an introduction. Um, I found as I started preparing for it that I could not contain everything in one message. So I would like to um, complete that here this morning. As we looked at that message, the, the previous message, we looked at who the Holy Spirit is. We looked at the person of the Holy Spirit, his identity, his character, his work. We looked at the presence of the Holy Spirit, how that in the Old Testament he appeared upon people, in the New Testament he abides within people, and we'll probably be talking more about that today. And we also looked at the purpose of the Holy Spirit, why he came. He came to make us his residence, and when he makes us his residence, he continues to renovate us and develop a relationship with us. Now, those of you that were here for Sunday school uh, noticed the picture that Sylvan used, and I told him, well, if I have this up here, I might just refer to it in uh, the sermon here as well, several times. And that, that picture somewhat would illustrate our lives before the work of Christ. And it was interesting how the, uh, the Sunday school lesson tied into the message here again this morning. But when Christ looked at your life, this, this represents your life. He looked, he saw something that he thought was redeemable. And he saw some beauty that he wanted to restore. And he looked at your life and he said, I could turn that into a place where I could live. He turns ruined lives into habitat for divinity, a place where the spirit can dwell. And when the spirit resides within us, he continues that renovation process in the first message, we looked more at who the Holy Spirit is, and today we'd like to look at what the Holy Spirit does, looking at his life. And we closed our first message with a verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, 
are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And that's the uh, phrase I've chosen to use for the title for the message this morning. Changed from glory to glory. The work of the Spirit in our lives. I'd like to look at the work of the Holy Spirit and uh, then later on look a little bit more at walking in the Spirit. But first of all, the work of the Holy Spirit and the origin of His work. In other words, from where does the Holy Spirit do His work? Now, some of the content of today's message is going to overlap a little bit the previous message, and there's two reasons for that. The one reason is that these aspects of the Holy Spirit's ministry are, are so intertwined, it's kind of hard to separate one aspect from another. The other reason for that is that as I continue to give this more thought, there's a few ideas that I'd like to, like to develop farther. So what is the origin of the Holy Spirit's work? He works from without. I'm talking about our lives. He works from outside the lives of people. He also works from within the lives of people. Now, in the previous message, I indicated that in the Old Testament, he tended to work from without. In the New Testament, he tends to work from within. And I'd like to develop that idea a little bit farther and try to illustrate it with some diagrams that I'm going to project here. And I'm sorry for those of you that are listening in that you won't be able to see those, but hopefully you'll be able to, uh, to follow the thinking here. Now, we are aware, I believe, that when God created us, he created us as a threefold being. He created us with a body, with a soul, and with a spirit. And that is indicated in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, where it talks about God creating us. And God formed man of the dust of the ground. That was the body. He formed the body from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, or we could say the spirit of life. Many times the word breath and spirit is the same Hebrew word, and man became a living soul. So we see those three aspects of man that was created right from the beginning. And we were created in the likeness and image of God. Now, that is the aspect that set us apart. It's a dimension of us with which God was able to unite our spirit and the spirit of God. We were created with, with a certain likeness there, a certain ability to mesh. And that distinction is what separated man from the rest of creation. God's creation was vast. It was broad and it, it involved so many different things. But in none of the other part of creation, none of the, none of the rest of creation has a spirit within it which is able to communicate with the spirit of God. And that is the distinction that set us apart. We were created to be habitat for divinity, the dwelling place of the Spirit of God himself. But then, something happened. Man sinned. And when man sinned, there's something about him that changed. We lost an aspect of the likeness and image of God. That part that we were created that could relate in perfect harmony with God that ability to relate in harmony was lost. And no longer 
Is the identity of our spirit compatible with the identity of the spirit of God? And they could no longer relate together as they could before. There was a barrier that occurred between us. That is why we say in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God rested upon his people. The Spirit of God would come upon people to work through them, to use them, but the Spirit of God could not really mesh with the Spirit of people. The compatibility was lost. God was holy. Man was sinful. That a likeness the likeness which allowed for the blending to take place was lost. Now, there are a few occurrences in the Old Testament, or before Pentecost, I should say, where the Bible records that God's Spirit was within a person or filled a person. But before Pentecost, that seems to be an exception rather than the rule. And those exceptions were specific times and purposes, and I'm not sure that there was the the total blending of spirits was able to occur at that point that could occur later on. But for the most part, before Pentecost, God's spirit could rest upon people rather than within them. For thousands of years, that's how it was. But then there was an event occurred that forever changed how man was able to relate with God. Christ came to the earth to shed his blood as a solution for this incompatibility. Now, what happens when the blood of Christ is applied to our lives? What takes place when that happens? There are a few indications, some insights into the Old Testament as to what would happen. In the book of Isaiah... God speaking to his people says, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. David, in his prayer of confession after his fall, in his prayer said, Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. So I ask the question, what happens when the blood of Christ is applied to our lives? We become whiter than snow. And that ability to communicate with God and that likeness with God is restored. Do you grasp the significance of this? We were uninhabitable. That likeness was broken, but Christ made us once again to be inhabitable by the Holy Spirit. The veil that separated us from God has been broken. And now, once again, our spirit is able to communicate with the Spirit of God. And His Spirit is able to relate with our spirit. Notice the promise of God that he gave to Ezekiel in the book of Ezekiel. He says, a new heart will I also give unto you. Remove that crimson heart of sin. A new heart will I give you. A new spirit will I put within you. I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. 
and called you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. You see, back in those days when the Spirit of God rested upon man, God promised to man that he's going to give him a new heart and that God's Spirit will once again be able to come into the life of men. You see, when God gives us a new spirit, a clean spirit, a compatible spirit, his spirit is once again able to mesh with our spirits. Are we able to comprehend what an awesome privilege we have? This is a privilege that for thousands of years, men could not experience. For the spirit of God to come and mesh with their spirit. And I hope this morning that we can be gripped by the significance of that truth. That God's spirit can enter our spirit and the spirit of God can live within us. And the more we allow that spirit to occupy and control our lives, the closer we will be to living in the conditions of Eden. Now, when I talk about the conditions of Eden, I'm not talking about the environment. We still live in a fallen world. There's sin all around us. But I'm talking about the conditions of the relationship with God that was unbroken before sin entered. The relationship, the joy, and the fulfillment. And perhaps you find yourself grappling with the question, how can I experience more of the spirit in my life? Or, or why does it seem like the Spirit does not feel my life? And I'd just like to remind you, do not forget that the work of the reconciliation of Jesus Christ and the work of the Spirit are tied together very closely. Don't expect to experience the filling of the Spirit in your life if you have not experienced the cleansing of the blood of Christ in your life. And even if there are areas in your life that you have not surrendered to Christ, do not expect the Spirit to be able to fill your life in those areas. If we wish to be filled with the Spirit, we need to surrender our life to the cleansing blood of Christ. There's a verse in the New Testament that I think kind of summarizes this whole thing. It's Titus 3, verse 5, and I'll project that here shortly. And as we look at this verse, I'd like you to to notice how all three members of the Trinity are emphasized in this verse. Titus 3, 5. says, not by works of righteousness which we have done. See, we cannot cleanse ourselves. We cannot live a righteous life to cleanse ourselves. That's impossible. But according to his mercy, he saved us. According to God's mercy, he saved us. By the washing of regeneration, here's where the blood of Christ comes in, and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. You see, the washing of regeneration makes possible for the filling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, hopefully, that can help us to grasp a little bit of this concept of the Holy Spirit working from without or from within. You can imagine the difference if God's Spirit is directing from outside your life or if he is directing from within your life and what a tremendous difference that is. Now, as we continue to look at the work of the Spirit, we will notice that even today, I believe there is some work that the Spirit does from without and there's some work that he does from within. We're looking at the origin of his work. 
Let's go on now and look at the objective of his work. And by the objective of his work, I simply mean, what does the Spirit do? What, what is his purpose? What is his desire as he works in our lives? If a teacher teaches a lesson, the lesson may have some objectives. Those objectives are simply what that teacher desires to teach, to accomplish in that lesson. What does the Holy Spirit desire to accomplish in our lives? What are his objectives? What is the objective, or what are the objectives of his work? Well, first of all, the Holy Spirit convicts the unbeliever. Now, this, I think, is a work that he does from without, because the Holy Spirit does not live inside the life of the unbeliever. But he does this from without. John chapter 16, verse 8, tells us that the Holy Spirit comes to convict the world, tells us three things. He convicts the world of sin. When he has come, he will reprove the world of sin. This is a sense of right and wrong that even unbelievers have. You know, an unbeliever's conscience can become seared. They can try to teach themselves that things are okay. They can try to rationalize everything they do. But suddenly they might wake up and realize this is not right. What I am doing is not right. It is wrong. You see, God's Spirit convicts them of sin. Even though he's not within them, he can convict them of sin. He convicts the world of judgment. Why does the unbeliever keep watching over his shoulder? Because he has a sense of right and wrong. And he knows that wrongdoing brings results. That's part of the conviction that he has. And I think it's this very point is the reason why the teaching of evolution is so popular in our society. You see, if people can convince themselves that there is no God, then they tell themselves they will not need to face the judgment of God. To me, evolution is nothing more than an attempt to escape the judgment of God. People try to escape the judgment of God, and that's the reason for that. But even an unbeliever has a sense of coming judgment and is looking for a way to escape it. I think that's part of the work of the Holy Spirit in the unbeliever's life. And of the need to repent. The Holy Spirit convicts the unbeliever of the need to repent. Jesus said in John 6, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. The unbeliever needs to be drawn, and I believe the Father draws him through the work of the Spirit, through the conviction of the Spirit. In John chapter 3, Jesus said, except a man be born of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You see, the, the Spirit convicts the world of the need to repent, of the need to come to, to Christ. And in Revelation chapter 22, the Spirit and the bride say, come, let him that is a thirst come. Whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. This is part of the conviction that the world gives, or that the Spirit gives to the world of the need to repent. Now, when an unbeliever heeds the Spirit's prompting and repents and accepts the reconciliation of Christ, the atoning work of his blood, then the Holy Spirit is able to move within him. And that moves us to the next part 
of the objective of the, the work of the Holy Spirit. He convicts the world, but he indwells and fills the believer. 1 Corinthians 6.13, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth within you? I don't need to say a lot more about this. We talked about this earlier under the origin, how the Holy Spirit can move within us. When we are cleansed by the redeeming blood of Christ, we become inhabitable, and the Holy Spirit can move within us. Now, when the prophecy came that Jesus was going to come to the earth, one of the names that he was given was Emmanuel. God with us. God with us. What a tremendous prophet, uh, promise to think that God was going to come to the earth in the form of his son and live with us. That is wonderful. But is it not even more wonderful that we have the Holy Spirit that can live within us? Which is greater, with or within? The Holy Spirit can live within us. Jesus himself, when he was here, said, Greater things than these shall ye do when the Holy Spirit comes to live within you. You see, within is even better than simply with us. So the Holy Spirit indwells and fills the believer. Well, what does he do when he indwells and fills the believer? He gives new life to the believer. Romans 8, verses 10 and 11. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he shall also quicken your mortal bodies. He shall give you life. He shall quicken you, bring you life. And then again, Titus 3.5, the verse that we read earlier. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but by his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, giving new life to us. What else does the Holy Spirit do? He empowers the believer. The Holy Spirit empowers the believer to live victoriously. A number of ways that he empowers us. First of all, to live victoriously. Galatians chapter 5, 16 and 17 says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth after the Spirit, and the Spirit after the flesh. And these are contrary, the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. Did you ever wonder what that phrase meant? So that ye cannot do the things that ye would. The flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit lusteth against the flesh. They're contrary, the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. Well, what would you do and what can't you do? I think there's two different possibilities and it may be by God's design that this is left um, open-ended. You see, if you live in the flesh and you want to do right, you do not have the power to do what is right. So if you're living in the flesh, you cannot do what is right. But on the other hand, if you're living in the spirit, you cannot live in the flesh. So it depends where we are as to what you can do and what you cannot do. The Spirit of God living within the believer empowers a believer to live victoriously so that we no longer need to live after the flesh. Romans 8, 2, part of the text that we read here earlier. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. I find 
Romans 8 to be such an exciting chapter. I think Romans 7 describes the person who has the spirit living without. Maybe the spirit is hovering over them. But they simply do not have the power to do what they want to do. What I would do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, I do. Paul described that struggle very vividly. But Romans 8 describes a person in whom the Spirit of God has entered. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Very beautiful passage. Read that passage. Meditate on it. The Holy Spirit empowers a believer to live victoriously. He also empowers a believer to produce fruit. Galatians 5, and 23, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And as I entered into this subject of studying the Holy Spirit so often, I felt like there, there's, there's so much here. And the fruit of the Spirit could be a series of sermons in itself. Uh, we're not going to cover that here. I think Norman had several sermons on that several years ago on the fruit of the Spirit. But when God's Spirit dwells within us, he gives us a power to live victoriously. He gives us a power to produce fruit. And furthermore, he gives us a power to be his witnesses. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, another familiar verse. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. This power of the Spirit living within is what transformed the disciples on the day of Pentecost. You look at the lives of the disciples before Pentecost. It seemed they were powerless. They quarreled. They failed. They could not seem to grasp the concepts that Jesus was teaching them. But on the day of Pentecost, they became different people. And it was the power of the Spirit living within them that transformed those disciples. This was the power that carried Paul across Asia Minor and into Greece and Macedonia and to Rome. Bearing the gospel of message, he went forth with power and hundreds of people. Their lives were changed because of that power. This was the power that carried men like Hudson Taylor and Adoniram Judson and William Carey and David Livingston and many others throughout Asia and Africa and other parts of the world with the gospel message. And this is the only power that can carry you if you wish to be a witness to God's power in your life. It's the only power that will give you effectiveness. Without the power of the Holy Spirit, you are a sailboat without wind. What does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit convicts us. He indwells us. He gives new life. He empowers us. And... He comforts the believer. The Holy Spirit is known as the comforter. John chapter 14, the promise of Jesus to his disciples. I will pray the Father and he will give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Jesus just got done telling them, I'm going to be leaving. But this spirit, this comforter will abide with you forever, even the spirit of truth. Ye know him for he dwelleth within you. Says the world cannot receive him because it seeth him not. Remember the world is not compatible. The spirit of the unwashed sinner is not compatible with the spirit of God. Says the world cannot receive him. But ye know him for he dwelleth in you. A comforter 
within. He gives us comfort along with that, spirit of peace, spirit of joy, and much more. He also teaches the believer. Also in John 14, Jesus was telling his disciples, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my life, in my name, shall teach you all things, shall bring things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. And in John 16, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. The Holy Spirit will teach us the truth of God. Now maybe you're tempted sometimes to look around you all the information we're bombarded with, all the things that we were told, and sometimes you might just ask, well, what is truth? After all, this world does offer a lot of fake news, if you want to use that term. What is true? What is not true? Much of what the world offers is not true. What the world tells us about marriage, what the world tells us about commitment, what the world tells us about keeping our promises, what the world teaches us about our whole system of values. What is truth? What is true? What is not? Well, John 17, chapter 17, in Jesus' prayer, he says, Thy word is truth. The Spirit teaches us what is true, and the Spirit will use the word of God to teach us that truth. In Ephesians chapter 6, where we uh, read about the Christian's armor, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The, the, uh, the Word of God is the sword that the Spirit wields. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to teach the truths of God. You, you cannot really separate them. And the Spirit of God will never lead you contrary to the Word of God. If the truth is in God's word, the Spirit will not lead you contrary to the teaching. He teaches the believer in truth. And along with this idea of teaching and truth, you know, what a child is taught as a young person is going to affect them throughout life. Now, as a child grows older, he might make decisions, he might change some thinking, but nevertheless, that influence is going to remain with him. The communists believe that. As you read about the values of the, the communist governments, how that they tried to instill their teaching in the lives of their children, they realized that what a child was taught as a young person would stick with them. The Jews believe that. They have a very extensive training program for their young people. Muslims believe that. Many of their young people memorize large portions of the Quran. What you are taught will stick with you. And I believe that. And that is why it is so important to allow God's spirit to be our teacher. Allow God's spirit to be the one to direct our lives. Well, he also guides the believer. There are many examples in Acts of the Holy Spirit guiding people. An uh, example when uh, Philip went to meet the Ethiopian. The Spirit of the Lord said unto Philip, Go. And he went at the bidding of the Spirit. The Holy Ghost told the church, Separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. And as Saul was traveling, the Spirit would give him direction, tell him where to go, where not to go. Sometimes Paul wanted to go to a certain area. And the Spirit forbade him to go there, suffered him not, because he had something else for him. The Spirit guides 
the believer. Luke chapter 12, verse 12 says, The Holy Spirit will teach you in that hour what you shall say. He can give us direction in our conversations with people. And there's something else that I think is significant about the Holy Spirit's guiding us. And that is that he will guide our prayers. Also here in Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27, tells us that sometimes we simply don't know how to pray. Have you ever felt that way? Needs are overwhelming and you really don't know how to pray for a certain situation. It says we know not how we should pray, what we should pray for as we ought, but the Holy Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the heart, God, knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Sometimes when I'm praying, I simply pause and ask, God, how should I pray for this situation? Or, God, what do you want me to pray for? What should I pray for next? Who do you want to bring to my mind to pray for? That's part of how the Holy Spirit guides us. He can guide our prayers. Now this is all what the Holy Spirit does. How should we respond to that then? We looked at the work of the Holy Spirit. What's he, what he wants to do in our lives. Now I'd like to look at the last section of the message. Walking in the Holy Spirit. If this is what the Holy Spirit wants to do to us. How should we respond to that? First of all, we need to flee the sins of the Holy Spirit. And I'm just going to mention a number of sins that the Holy Spirit or that the scriptures mention that we can do against the Holy Spirit. And I'd like to emphasize that sinning against the Holy Spirit is a serious matter. Because remember, the Holy Spirit is God. And sinning against the Spirit is sinning against God. What are the sins of the Spirit against the Holy Spirit? Resisting the Holy Spirit. Acts 7.51 Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. Resisting the Holy Spirit simply means to oppose, to be against what he's doing, to try to stop the work of the Spirit. When the Spirit is working, God forbid that we should stand in the way of his working either in our lives or in the lives of someone else. This is resisting the Holy Spirit. Then there's grieving the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you're sealed to the pain, onto the day of redemption. And this word grieving the Holy Spirit simply means to pain or to vex, to disappoint. Really doesn't sound that hard to do, to disappoint the Spirit. How often have I disappointed the Spirit or vexed him with what I've done? We need to be careful. Quench not the Spirit. Quenching the Spirit would be a sin against the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.19, quench not the Spirit. This is the same word in the Greek that is used in Ephesians 6, where we are told that we will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Now, in that sense, it's something good. But when we quench the fiery darts, we extinguish them, we put them out. Exactly the opposite of what we want to do to the Spirit. Quench not the Spirit. Then there is lying to the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 5, verse 3. And also tempting the Holy Spirit. In the same chapter, verse 9. Peter said to Ananias, Why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? 
And then he said unto Sapphira, how is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of God? Tempting the Spirit of God is just simply doing that which would invite his wrath into our lives. Then there would be the possibility of insulting or despising the Holy Spirit. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29, the NIV uses the word um, insult. King James uses the word to despise or to do despite onto the spirit of grace. How much sore punishment shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite onto the spirit of grace. Now, think back to this diagram we had showed here earlier. How that the blood of Christ is what made us inhabitable by the Holy Spirit. This verse says, Of how much sore punishment shall he be thought worthy who hath counted the blood of the covenant an unholy thing, not worthwhile. And by doing so, you're despising the Spirit of grace. You're refusing him. You're offending him. You're insulting him. And then there is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 12. We had this in our Sunday school lesson um, perhaps a month or two ago, a number of weeks ago. And the word blasphemy in this text simply means that which is indecent, vulgar, abusive, or evil speaking. Now, as we look at these, this list of seven sins against the Spirit... I'm not sure that they are all necessarily separate and individual and different things. I think sometimes there's maybe different words used to describe the same thing. But at any rate, these seven descriptions give a very vivid picture of how we should not respond to the Holy Ghost. And as we look at that, is there any one of those or more than one, that I'm guilty of, or that you're guilty of? Ask yourself that question. Haven't I resisted the Holy Spirit's leading in my life? Maybe he's prompting me to speak to someone about an issue, and I really don't want to, and I resist that. It can be a serious matter to resist the Spirit. He's within us. He wants to control our life. How about lying to the Holy Spirit? Oh, we may not lie like Ananias and Sapphira did, but how often do we tell the Spirit, well, I think I really don't need your help on this one. I got this one under control. I'll handle it myself. We don't have our lives under our control. We can't handle it ourselves. That's lying to the Spirit. How about grieving the Holy Spirit? With our actions, with our attitudes, the thoughts that we think, any impurity that we leave in is a grief to the Holy Spirit, quenching the Holy Spirit. And then there's a question, well, what about blasphemy? What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? It's a question we ask sometimes. What really is it? And uh, there's various responses we hear to that answer. And I'm sure I don't have, um, don't have the full knowledge to what that is. Something I'm still interested in. But what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Could it be attributing the work of God to Satan? That was what happened in Matthew 12, right before Jesus said those words, where the Jews came to him and said, well, he's casting out Satan by, he's casting out these spirits by the power of Satan. And Jesus responded to them and said, be careful that you do not blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Do not give credit 
to Satan for what God's Spirit is doing. Be careful about the comments we make about people's lives. Or could it simply be asking or bidding the Holy Spirit to leave you alone and not come back again? You see, the Spirit of God does not force his way into our lives. He will not barge his way in. He will come in at our will. He will not live there against our will. And if we ask him to leave, if we ask him to depart, he is not going to stay against our will. If you ask the Spirit of God to leave you alone, brothers and sisters, you're treading on dangerous territory. He just might take you at your word. And that leaves you in a dangerous position. Never ask him to leave you alone. I believe that the Holy Spirit may be the most intimate aspect of the Trinity of God. You know, Christ came to earth, but the Holy Spirit lives within us, a very intimate relationship. And I think we realize that when we are offended by someone that we are very close to, someone that we have experienced an intimate relationship with, when we are offended by those people, it hurts even worse than when we're offended by someone we hardly know. And that's why I say be careful not to offend the Holy Spirit. He wants that intimate relationship with you. Remember in the previous sermon I said he, he resides within us. He renovates this house that he moves into because he wants a relationship with us. Let us not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Let us not view the sins of the Spirit lightly. So how do we walk in the Spirit? First of all, we need to avoid these sins against the Spirit. But then we need to follow the leading of the Spirit. And I'm just going to mention four things here yet in following the leading of the Spirit. First of all, we need to allow the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, going back to this illustration, remember the, the blood of Christ had to cleanse our spirits so that the Spirit of God could mesh. But if there's a portion of our spirit that we are not surrendering to Christ, if there's a portion that we are not allowing him to cleanse, that we are not allowing his blood to, to purify, any areas that we're reserving in our life will prevent us from being filled with the fullness of the Spirit. So the first step in walking with the Spirit and following his leading is to allow the blood of Christ just to wash over our lives in entirety and cleanse our lives. We need to admit our need of the Spirit, confess our need of the Spirit. You see, as long as I have this idea that I can get along pretty good in my own, the Holy Spirit's probably just going to let me try it. I've found that if I feel that I have a sermon pretty well sewed up, this is a subject I like, I can handle this one, those are the sermons that tend to leave me feeling like they fell flat on their face. But when we confess our dependence on God and our need for Him, that is when He is able to work. I remember when I was living in Romania, 
Um, Alvin Stoltzus was there at the same time, and Alvin and I shared a responsibility in our Sunday morning services. One Sunday morning I would be responsible, the next Sunday morning he would be responsible for about a 45-minute period. And one Sunday morning it was my turn, and I was prepared, and I woke up that Sunday morning sick. There was no question. I was not going to church that morning. So I called Alvin, gave him a few minutes notice, and said, I, I'm sorry, I can't make it. Can you fill in for me? And Alvin said, well, I'll, I'll do what I can. He really had no time to prepare. Afterwards, his wife told him, that was the best Sunday morning you ever had yet. Why was it? Because he recognized the need to depend on the Holy Spirit's leading in his life. And I find the same thing. The more dependent I am, the more God can work. And we need to come to the point running our lives or a responsibility that we're given where we just say, God, I can't do it. It's not in me. I don't have it. It's up to you. It's a point we need to come to. Admit our need. We need to surrender totally to his leading. If there is, as the, as the Spirit leads you step by step, if there's one step that you refuse to take, you say, I don't want to take this step. Why would the Holy Spirit reveal to you the next step? You need to Surrender to his leading step by step. Be filled with the Spirit. And again, remember that total commitment of giving everything to him. And then finally, be willing to lose your identity in him. Did you notice on the diagram I had up earlier, body, soul, and spirit, how that when the Spirit of God came into our life, you no longer saw my spirit, but now it's the spirit of God. And as the spirit of God blends with our spirit, we need to be willing to just lose our identity to him. What do people see when they see you? Do they see you? Or do they see God's spirit within you, flowing out of you? Out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water, Jesus said, referring to the spirit in his life. The mark of a mature Christian is when that individual's spirit becomes indistinguishable from the spirit of God. Not two separate spirits, but as they blend and become one. Allow your identity to be lost in the identity of Christ. In conclusion, I read recently about a well-known TV personality by the name of Anthony Bourdain. I'd never heard of him before. But this man made an interesting statement. He said, some people say that your body is a temple. Your body is not a temple. It's an amusement park. Enjoy the ride. That was his statement on life. And that's how he lived his life. He lived his life to enjoy the ride. He partied, he indulged, he abused, he ate, he drank. But the day came when this man realized that no matter how hard he partied, he still was not enjoying the ride, as he called it. And several months ago, this man's life came to a tragic end. His ride, quote unquote, came to a tragic end when he committed suicide. He claimed that his body was not a temple. He was just out to enjoy the ride. But he found 
that when you're out to enjoy the ride, life is meaningless. Life has no meaning. If God's spirit does not live within you, you really have no reason to live. So I leave you with that question this morning. Are you filled with the spirit? Does God's spirit live within you? Are you filled with his spirit? Going back to Sylvan's picture here. When God sees you, he sees a place where he would like to live. He sees a place that says, I I would like to make something out of that life. And when the spirit moves within you, he begins that renovating, renovation process that Sylvan was talking about. And that process lasts a lifetime. It does not get over in a day or a week. It lasts for our lives. And if you allow him to continue his work in your life, you will be changed. Now, Sylvan indicated that he wished he had another picture here, and I I actually um, looked for another picture. Maybe that is what your life will look like after the Spirit of God moves inside and completes his renovation. You will be glowing with his presence. Probably the first thing you notice when you look at that is the glow emanating from within. If the spirit is within us, that's what people will notice when they look at us. They will see the spirit. They will be attracted. You will appear warm and inviting. And others will desire what you have. I'd like to close again with 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory. How? even as by the Spirit of the Lord. We'd like to come to prayer, and we invite those who care to to kneel with us as we pray. Father, this morning again, we're filled with gratitude for your work in our lives. We're filled with gratitude for your mercy and for the blood of your son that can cleanse our lives and and make us compatible again so that your spirit can dwell within us. What a wonderful privilege we have. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with a sense of awe this morning of being a place of your residence. I pray that your spirit could live within us and could shine out of us, could glow forth, that all the world could see your spirit when they look at us. And that they would desire your spirit to live within, within them as well. Pray that your kingdom could grow for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.